I said, well, why aren't you actually prosecuting for that? And he literally laughed and said, well, why would we? These people killed and tortured people. Why would we bother about the rape? So I said to him, but to the women, this is worse than that. They have to live this with this the rest of their lives. And many of the women that I spoke to, majority of the women I spoke to said that they would rather have died than this happened. So of course, it's important to bring people to justice. And he just couldn't understand it. And I think that that is unfortunately um, common. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. I'm also the founder of Rosebud Woman, a company that makes beautiful, intimate skincare products and body care products to support a woman through all the stages of her sensual and sexual and reproductive life and aims to change the narrative around what it means to be alive in a female body. No more body shame, total joy. We say more joy and less suffering. And when you talk about less suffering, I know that the baseline from which people are beginning on body love is very different depending on your upbringing and the things that have happened to you. So this is part of a series on bearing witness. Last week, we talked about clergy sexual abuse and the week before religious trauma. And today we are talking about the effect of war on women. The journalist that I'm speaking with, Christina Lamb, has written an extraordinary, extraordinary book. Uh, she's traveled to 12 countries that were troubled by war from Burma to Bangladesh. She has reported on war for over 30 years and was increasingly upset by the untold stories of women and girls in the coverage of war. Shockingly, though rape was formalized as a war crime in 1919, the International Criminal Court, at the time she published this book in 2019, had convicted no one. There's only been one conviction, and that was since then. Not a single person. For the millions and millions of times, this systemic crime has been used as a way to advance strategic interests of an invading army to bring about genocide, terror, to clear out an area for occupation, to humiliate and to subjugate the people. Rape and mutilation and terror are just part of the story. And it doesn't seem to matter what age it is. It's, you know, eight to 80. So when you hear this, I want you to listen for a couple of threads. One is the massive nature of it. Second is how it's not talked about because it's so shameful and scary and there's such a stigma around sexuality that people do their best to just look away. The third is the healers, the people who are creating hospitals, recovery centers, and ways to really treat individual people who had these things happen to them. And then fourth is listen for policy potential uh, for what could be done as a comprehensive response to people who've suffered these kinds of attacks. I want us to come back to at least a baseline that we can build off of where everyone can have more joy and less suffering in their body. So we have to look, we have to know what's real, and then from there we can demand better. I know many of you have read Sonia Renee Taylor's book on radical self-love, and she says that self-love is a political act, that if you love yourself enough and you love other people who look like you, who have bodies like you, and see them as worthy, then you will, of course, stand up and demand better systems to support them. So political activism is a form of self-love as a woman. Let's dive in with author Christina Lamb. I was um, in the Dusseldorf airport when I saw your book and picked it up not knowing what to expect. 
And I hadn't seen it in the United States. I hadn't seen it in my local bookstore or anything like that. And I was stunned by the content. I had no idea of the scope of these crimes over history. The thing that caught me in the frontispiece of the book was that this has been a war crime since 1919, over t- almost over 100 years, and there had not been a single conviction. And I thought we might start there with the massivity of the problem and the turning away. Well, that is the most shocking thing, I think, about all of this. I mean, I started looking at this because I'm a foreign correspondent and mostly covering conflicts. And I've always been most interested in what happens to women in conflicts. And because I feel strongly that the most interesting story that people trying to keep life together during war and um, and feed, protect, educate their children and shelter the elderly. And that's almost always the women. So I've always spoken a lot to, to women in um, war zones. But there's also this dark side of what happens, which is the um, use of sexual violence. And I've been doing this job for more than 30 years. And yet I would say in the last seven or eight years, it seems to have got much worse. And I was trying to understand why that could be. And that's what started me really researching this a lot, being so shocked at how few convictions there were So the first people that I actually really talked to a lot about this was uh, some of the Yazidi women who were taken by ISIS fighters in in 2014 from Shingal, uh, where they live between Iraq and Syria, mostly taken into Syria and and kept as sex slaves. Uh, Now, a number of them escaped eventually, and the stories were just horrendous. What was interesting is that they did come out and speak, and yet nothing happened. And so they were asking people like me, who they'd spoken to, why is no one doing anything? We told our stories. And I also couldn't understand that. So I started looking at this issue in in depth and found that actually this is almost always the way that accountability is the exception, not the rule. In the book, you get at some of the reasons that some that there is no persecution, and it's heavily tied to the way women are treated outside of war. Would you speak to that a little bit? I mean, I think the problem to me is that um, almost all the peace negotiations at the end of war are done by men. There isn't a single peace negotiation anywhere in the world at the moment that's headed by a woman. Most of them have very few women. And it seems that to many men that this is a kind of side issue that is not as important as the torture or or killing. Um, So, for example, again, going back to the Yazidis, I went to some of the cases um, that were being heard in Iraq of ISIS fighters who'd been caught. And I went to speak to the chief justice in Nineveh. And it was you know, justice not quite as we know it, because they were literally, you know, within 20 minutes, uh, sentencing people to death. But I said to him, all the people were being tried on terrorism charges. So I said to him, have any of these people taken Yazidi girls as sex slaves? And so he said, yes, lots of them. I said, well, why aren't you actually prosecuting for that? And he literally laughed and said, well, why would we? These people killed and tortured people. 
why would we bother about the rape? So I said to him, but to the women, this is worse than that. They have to live this with this the rest of their lives. And many of the women that I spoke to, majority of the women I spoke to said that they would rather have died than this happened. So of course, it's important to bring people to justice. And he just couldn't understand it. And I think that that is unfortunately um, common. And Dr. McQuaggie, who is one of the heroes in my book, who is this amazing gynecologist in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo who runs Pansy Hospital, which has, I should think, treated more rape victims than anywhere on earth because they've treated 55,000 women and girls who've been raped in conflict. He says, you know, imagine if this was happening on a, such a large scale to men, if tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men were being genitally mutilated and were then traumatized for the rest of their lives, and that was all being done to them by women. Do we really believe that nobody would be bringing people to justice? And I think he has a point, and it cannot be coincidence that. I mean, there have been successes in courts in recent years in some domestic courts around the world. But in pretty much every case, the judge or prosecutor has been female. And so I think that that is, again, one of the issues. We need more representation of women in courts and uh, as well as in peace negotiations. I mean, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously said women belong in all the places where decisions are being made. And I think this is a very clear example of why that's needed. Yeah, I want to come I want to come back to the story of the Punzi Hospital, because that's amazing. But also say first, there's a quote in the book, where it talks about the Yazidis who were coming out and telling their stories to journalists. And they saw that nothing was happening as a result. And they, I think you say vultures feasting on their misery, journalists. They, they no longer saw the point of talking as international outrage had not translated into rebuilding their homeland or delivering justice for what they had suffered. And that, I mean, that does seem to be at the crux of it. It's like, how do you, how do you make amends or how do you begin to heal? And the Penzi Hospital seemed to be on the verge of a good model. I think it was physical trauma, then emotional trauma, socioeconomic support, and then legal support. And then a lot of things around building safe spaces, which deal at some level with the individual's healing, but not to what you're talking about in terms of the broader framework for justice and visibility. No, I mean, the Pansy Hospital is absolutely a, a great model. It's a very holistic model. It basically, um, Dr. McCraggy explains how when he started treating these women with, you know, absolutely horrific um, damage, I mean, some of them needed, you know, 12, 13 operations to repair the damage that had been done to them. Uh, some will be incontinent for the rest of their lives because of what happened to them. And so he thought his job was just about that. But then he said he realized that even when he had done that, that that wasn't the end of things, that they were also really emotionally traumatized. So the hospital has now a, a big department of counseling. But then he realized that that wasn't enough because unfortunately, one of the most heartbreaking things about this issue is that 
the victims are often made to feel that they did something wrong and they are ostracized. I mean, I, I'm afraid, you know, rape is the one vic- crime where the victim is made to feel blame far too often. And, and so there are many cases where women who have gone through these terrible deals are then ostracized by their communities and not taken back. I mean, uh, probably the most heartbreaking example I saw of that was in northern Nigeria, where tens of thousands of girls have been taken by Boko Haram fighters and forced to be their what they call their bushwives. And some of them have been rescued by Nigerian military. Often those Nigerian soldiers rape them again. And then they're taken to camps for internally displaced people, which are organized by community. And their communities won't take them back because they regard them as being sullied and also brainwashed by the Boko Haram fighters. So they actually then have no means of living. And the only way often is to actually sleep with the camp officials in order to get rations. So this is happening, you know, far too often where people are becoming victims over and over again. So Dr. McQuiggy recognized that. And so he started actually providing training for some of the survivors, both in terms of, I mean, some of them didn't read and write, so literacy training, helping them with business training, with loans to set up small businesses so that they actually had a a means of of earning a living if their families and communities wouldn't take them back. Um, But even that um, wasn't enough. So then the final stage was he started a a legal department. So, you know, this is a hospital that now provides legal resources for the women if they want to try and get justice against their perpetrators, which he encourages because like me, like many people in this issue, feels that nothing will change until people are brought to justice for for what they're doing. That is really, you know, the the best model that there is anywhere, but it's uh, pretty much unique at the moment. You're writing from, you know, Burma to Bangladesh, from Argentina to the Congo, and it does seem that this connection between the pre-existing sexual purity culture and whether or not a woman gets welcomed back into the family is pretty strong. Like there's the the women, I think in the Bengal conflict was, uh, they, you call them the women who stare into space. Yes. You know, they're so destroyed and there's no one to, nowhere to go back to. No, and that, I mean, the Bangladesh, I mean, that's the irony there is that the president of Bangladesh uh, after the war for independence, when it became, succeeded from Pakistan and became Bangladesh, in 1971, he recognized the sacrifice of these women who'd been raped by Pakistani military. And so he gave them a name and and said that they should all be given pensions and recognized. Unfortunately, so his name was Sheikh Majib. He was assassinated uh, not long afterwards and then a, a different, more conservative government took over. And those women had then been branded because they'd come forward because they were being recognized rightly as as heroes. And then suddenly they were not considered heroes anymore, but people knew who they were. So they were having to flee their villages. Centers that had been opened for them were closed down. 
and they lived in terrible situations, really, you know, trying to scrape a living for years, for decades. The Berengonas, is that how you pronounce that word? Yes, the Berengonas, yeah. It's interesting to be able to look over a longer time period and see that then this Sheikh Majib's daughter was elected 20 some years later, and she reinstated the recognition of them, but not not in time to sort of save the lives of the women. No, and and I mean, unfortunately, uh, so now they can get a special pension, but some don't want to come forward now because they think that they'll be branded. Their families don't want them to come forward because they think it brings shame on them if, if people, you know, by now people didn't know. So this virginity, sexual purity, uh, sexual shame has to be addressed in the broader culture before, you know, because it's amplified then in war and the, the aftermath is amplified. So do you, do you feel that's the same way in South America? Well, in, in all of these cases that I looked at, I mean, one of the similarities was how difficult it was for them to be accepted back into their communities afterwards or to talk about it. And so people were living for years without talking about it at all. And so one of the things I think important, apart from doing something about bringing perpetrators to justice, is also talking to communities and community leaders about the importance of bringing these women back into the community. And actually the um, Yazidi uh, leader, Baba Sheikh, uh, who's since died, but at the time, was encouraged to make a statement saying that these women actually are heroic and and that it is a, a good thing to marry these women and they should be welcomed back, which was good that he did. The problem is that a lot of those women had babies with ISIS fighters and he didn't say that about the children. So uh, many Yazidis were then left with a choice that no woman should have to make, which was should she leave her child behind so she could go back to her community or stay with the child um, and not go back to the Yazidis. So some have actually, you know, become refugees in places like France and Canada and Australia, I think, also have taken some um, so that they can stay with their children. More holistic understanding of community recognition, welcoming back the children, welcoming back the women. You also pointed to a few times in, in the books the impact of working with the earth on healing, that like touching the soil from pain to planting. And can you speak to sort of the healing modalities that you found worked? Sure. I mean, one of the frustrating things I found when I started looking at this, so I went to 12 different countries to talk to people in depth about what had happened. But I also looked, you know, because obviously this isn't new, there's always been rape in war, looked at the sort of history of it, although I was focusing particularly on the use of rape as a weapon, which I think is something more common recently. We were just seeing that in Ukraine, I think. We can talk about that. I just came back recently. One of the problems is the lack of justice. But another issue is that there isn't really a sort of major organization to help these women survivors. And so there are small organizations, some of them very good in different places. I mean, Bosnia, of course, which is where this happened a lot in the war in the 1990s, and there were rape camps. And so they have some organizations like Medica Zenita, which have 
help to help Srebrenica widows. And uh, so there are different smaller organizations. Um, then in Congo, you have the Pansy Hospital and you have something called City of Joy, which was, it was a wonderful project um, set up by Christine Schuler and um, Eve Ensler, who wrote the Vagina Monologues, has been very involved in that. But all these things are very small <laughs> they, and, and they don't seem to speak to each other. So I found when I spoke to women of Srebrenica and the people helping them, they told me that one of the things they'd found was that it really helped them growing things. So first they were growing roses and, and the idea actually initially had been to give them some kind of income going back to this whole issue of them needing to be self-supporting. So the idea was they would grow roses and sell them at the memorials to all those who were massacred. But then the women were not selling the roses because they said they really liked the roses in their gardens and liked you know the smell of the roses. And so uh, eventually more roses uh, were given but to grow. But they now produce tea, herbal teas, and they found working with the earth and with nature very healing. So they, you know, they discovered that maybe 15, 20 years ago. Then you go to Congo, it's a city of joy, um, which takes a small number of survivors for six months, helps them to sort of be in control of their own story, to have some leadership skills, to go back to their community and some, and also meditation, relaxation how to actually deal with the, the terrible trauma that they've gone through. And, and they said to me, and now we've just started this farm because we've found that that's incredibly helpful growing things, which is great. But you sort of feel, wow, if they'd spoken to the Srebrenica people right at the beginning when they started this project 15 years ago, they would have known straight away rather than taking so much time to discover that. So there is not enough kind of networking communication between all these different groups at the moment. Yeah, I thought after reading the book that you could really develop a best practices template during and after conflict. Coming off of the things that you spent I mean, going to 12 countries, now the Ukraine also, I, that, that you could basically lay out, here's what you do. You go in immediately, you lay out intervention camps, you lay out socioeconomic support, you do these community interventions, and that there's a template, physical healing, all um, socioeconomic support, community reintegration. Yeah, because frankly, the, the, the same kind of things seem to work everywhere, even though they're completely different places and different cultures. So definitely. Prior to the 70s in the writing, it seemed that it was more rape was like the objectification of women as the spoils of war. And then it took a turn, or maybe that was even with Franco, it took a turn towards a, a tool of genocide and and a tool of uh, breaking up communities and basically dispersing the population. It became more strategic. Um, is that accurate historically? So, yeah, I mean, if you look, when I talk to people about working on this book, a lot of people sort of said to me, well, there's always been rape in war, like almost, you know, what's the big deal kind of thing. So first of all, well, here we are in 2022. I'm not sure that things that were happening in the times of the ancient Greeks and Romans necessarily uh, things that we want to adhere to. But secondly, as you say, I mean, a lot of the 
uh, rape in recent conflicts has been something deliberately organized and, and, and targeted and not something. So if you look at sort of rape back in the ancient Greeks and Persians, there was a lot of kind of abduction of women, but it was often the sort of, because of the chaos of war, when no laws apply, it was opportunistic. It was um, people taking advantage of the situation and um, pillaging, looting, and raping, where you often put rape and pillage together. What we've seen in more recent conflicts is people actually being ordered to go and rape for a specific reason. So, for example, in Bosnia or Rwanda in the 90s, it was for ethnic reasons. It was to go and target the other ethnicity and also to try and impregnate the the women from that ethnicity. Same in Bangladesh, so that you would change the ethnic balance. It, it was also to try and... It's a very effective tool if you want to terrorize and humiliate a, a community because you don't only terrorize the women but also the men are made to feel that they can't protect their women and so you you see it done there for ethnic reasons you see it done with isis um, against the yazidis for religious reasons so they were all told that the yazidis are, are devil worshippers that they and it is your religious duty to go and rape these women and girls and there was even, you know, printed pamphlets of how, so they were called sabia or, or slave, and how to treat them, like when, what age is it okay to, to take them already before puberty. And they also sold them between each other with actual printed, like, licenses, almost as if you were, were selling a car. So it was a very regulated official system, Um you had, if you go back to the Second World War, you had the the Japanese army setting up these um, what they called comfort stations, where they um, basically kidnapped a lot of young women across Southeast Asia, or they told them that they were going to go and work in things, and actually then kept them as prostitutes and were raping them over and over again slaves they were uh, and that was a very regulated system all the paperwork seems to have subsequently been destroyed or disappeared but then you also have things so which is perhaps relevant now with ukraine you had the russians the red army at the end of second world war going into berlin liberating berlin and raping huge numbers of German women. I mean, estimated 2 million women were supposed to have been raped at that time. Now, I, I don't think anybody's ever found a bit of paper where a Russian officer is um, ordering his men to do that. But the fact that it was done on such a massive scale clearly was something that came from above, that people were encouraged to to do it and i think you know that is what we seem to be seeing in in ukraine too i feel like rape is an inadequate word you know the the, the things you're describing in the book is mutilation and well that's what dr mcquiggy says <laughs> i mean dr mcquiggy says that he says obviously is inadequate because if it the fact that we're not doing anything about it it must be inadequate how can people 
let this happen on such a scale. And, you know, we're talking over, so 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, the United Nations passed a resolution, 1325. Every member nation, including Russia, signed up to this resolution, which said that sexual violence in conflict is completely unacceptable. We need to do something about it. We also need to um, increase women's representation in peace negotiations, in peacekeeping and in justice because the two things are connected. In those 20 odd years, the number of women that have um, been raped in conflict has gone up enormously. I mean, hundreds of thousands of women have been raped in that time. And the International Criminal Court, which was set up to deal with issues such as this, has only successfully convicted one person in that time. How can that possibly be acceptable? I mean, it's just absolutely outrageous. And then reversed that conviction. And so there's been one since. So there, there's so that's why I said one successfully. So there was one where it was reversed, and then there's subsequently been one um, after that. But that's it. I mean, <laughs> at a time when it's happened on such a scale. Tell me about Ukraine. What's happening? So I started getting messages from activists in Ukraine quite early on into the war saying that women were being raped by Russian soldiers. To be honest, I was a little bit skeptical at the beginning because I thought, you know, it's early on in the war. These things seem tend to happen later on under occupation. And they were just sort of report, people were saying that they were posting videos on porn sites. And so I wasn't sure. But then once the Russians left those areas around Kiev, those towns like Bucha and Erpin and Hostomel and Brodyanka, which they'd been occupying for almost a month of March, once they were driven out and um, people started to come forward to talk about what had happened in that time, it soon became clear that actually this had happened on a really big scale, that there were lots of women had been raped. So I went there and I interviewed some of the women. Um, in particular, for example, I just focused on one street in a remote village. And just on that tiny street, Two women had been raped, two men had been killed, and two houses destroyed. So, you know, if you extrapolate that, <laughs> and when you talk to people like the prosecutor or the human rights ombudsman or lawyers who are being approached by some of the survivors, I mean, it's quite clear that this happened on a wide scale. Now, were people ordered to do it? Were were they doing it because they'd been made to feel that the Ukrainians were not human, that they were, you know, Nazis, that they needed to be taught a lesson? Was it because the fighters were demoralized because the fighting wasn't going very well and they wanted revenge on the communities? I mean, I don't know. But for example, the street that I talk about where these two women were raped so first, people, the soldiers had come to the houses and tie, asked women to tie white material on their gates. And it became clear, they didn't realize at the time, but this was presumably a way of marking that this was where there were women that they were interested in, in raping. 
Then they went back to those houses with their commander. And he said to the women, my men have been drinking vodka and now they need entertainment. So it was the officer telling the women, you have to come with these soldiers. Um, And then they were, were taken and raped. There also seems to be a lot of similarity when you hear the stories from from different places, from like Kherson in, in the south, from these towns around Kiev in central Ukraine, and some of the places in the north around Kharkiv that have been liberated. The similar stories of how, you know, it was often gang rape, um, women were often um, raped in front of their children or also really sadistic things you know like uh, one story i was told by a lawyer of um two sisters where the elder sister was made to watch the younger sister be raped for days they were kept prisoner and um by russians and the elder sister i mean she was only like 19 the other one i think was 60 16 was begging them take me instead and then they were saying you know you're ugly we want her um and in the end they they raped the younger one so horrifically that she died in the end of her injuries and the elder sister was left locked up in this sort of cellar with the body of her sister for days so i mean these are really evil horrendous things this isn't Not that it's ever okay, but this isn't sort of just random young men taking advantage of the situation to to sleep with a woman. This is actually, you know, really evil things that have been carried out. What happens to men? They all have mothers and sisters and daughters. I mean, what happens to them? How can they do those things? Any are there there, the psychology of men at war? Do they? I know the dehumanization theories, you know, those that, that you've just decided the other person isn't a human being anymore. Um, but this cruelty. It's very difficult. I mean, obviously, writing a book like this you do, does make you think all the time. And is there something that happens to men in war? I mean, would, would all men in that situation <laughs> end up doing this? So I've spoken a lot to uh, British military historian who's very well known called Anthony Beaver, who's written a lot about... I wrote a famous book called Stalingrad and then about Berlin, and he's now got a book out about the Russian Civil War. So he's written a lot about Russians in war. And it was him that really exposed the extent of the rape in Berlin in 1945. And he said to me that, you know, I mean, he says it gave him PTSD researching these because the stories were so horrific and it made him worry. Is there some latent thing in all men that if we were in this situation that this we would do this? Uh, I'd like to believe that that's not true. But clearly, I mean, my book was really about what war does to women. So I did try and meet some perpetrators, but... It wasn't a book about perpetrators. I think that there is a need for much more research on, on this, why people do it. And clearly there's also a link between high levels of domestic violence in society and 
uh, war rape, so some uh, going both ways. So places where the men have carried out a lot of war rape will then maybe go back and carry on with a lot of violence in their societies. So I think we've seen that in places like Sierra Leone. But it can be the other way. So, I mean, some of the lawyers in Ukraine were pointing out to me that, you know, Russia doesn't have laws on, on domestic violence and, you know, that women are treated very badly in Russia generally. So it's not a surprise that they will come to Ukraine and, and think that they can do these kind of things. Well, back to the women. You know, there's a quote in your book, wars happen to people one by one. And what's what what's captivating in the book is, and the most difficult to take is not the statistics, but the individual stories, because they're so tender and terrifying. Like I came away with it, both feeling a deep sense of helplessness, like it's resting on this massive transgenerational multi-thousand year trauma of objectification and violence, and it like lives in the genetic tree. I kind of had that feeling. I also had this response of, but there are things we can do. There are things that are you've, that you've pointed out that can be done to both help heal and to prevent. But the stories of the individuals really are the things that bring the problem alive and take it from a word or a statistic, a label into um, the, the true undercurrent of human suffering. Uh, how did you in capturing these stories, how did you stay or did you stay present? And how could you attend at that level to capture all of these without sort of becoming sick? Well, it's a good question. It was the hardest book I've ever written. Um, these are really difficult stories to to hear, to tell and, and to read. You know, it's not an easy book to, to read. I understand that. But I think that the the fact is, however hard all of that might be, it is way harder for these women to actually tell the stories and, of course, go through the terrible ordeals in the first place. So it feels to me that we, I felt I owed it to them. If they were brave enough to come forward, the least I can do is try and tell their stories and get it to a wider audience. And I also you know, say to people who say, well, these are uncomfortable things to read. Yeah, they are uncomfortable, but that is why we need to read them because we need to stop these things happening and we owe it to these women and girls to to listen to what they said. I always remember, I mean, one of the hardest stories, a 16-year-old girl that was taken by a UCD fat, I mean, a 16-year-old UCD girl who was taken by a fat ISIS judge who tied her to his bed and would rape her every night. And she said to me that the hardest night was when he brought back a 10-year-old girl and then raped her in the room next door. And she was listening to the girl crying for her mother all night. Um, and that story was so hard for her to tell. And she kept stopping. And I kept saying to her, you, you know, you don't have to tell the story. We can stop. And she looked at me really fiercely and said, I can't get away from my trauma but I don't want anyone to be able to say they didn't know. And, you know, I felt that strongly that it is, I mean, my job generally is a foreign correspondent. I feel like it's my job to tell stories for people that may not have the platform to, to tell them themselves. But, you know, I did have to keep stopping while I was writing it and kind of go, go for a walk and look at 
trees and look at the river and you know and think about more beautiful things but I spoke a lot because of course when you do a book like this you're really worried about re-traumatizing people by making them relive these most terrible things that could possibly happen I spoke a lot to survivors after I wrote the book, really, about how we can report more responsibly because journalists are often the very first people that meet these women and we're not trained with how to deal with deeply traumatized people. We're often in a hurry to meet our deadlines and we just want to know what happened. Uh, So I was asking them, you know, how to do this in a more responsible way because, you know, they also want the stories told for the most part because they want people to know that something is done about it. But, you know, there are are ways to, to do it more responsibly. And just about all of them said to me, one of the things they felt very strongly was that in reporting of them or telling their stories that it shouldn't just be about their trauma right? they should be written about as real people with you know hopes and dreams and what their lives were before and what you know and so I tried to do that um, you know as you said focusing on the individual often brings things alive much more and I did think about focusing on fewer people and telling their stories in much more depth but I actually in the end decided that I didn't think people had a clue of the scale of this I I as a reporter covering these issues didn't have a clue so why should anybody else so I actually I mean there are lots of women in the book just because I wanted people to to realize that this isn't just happening in a few far off places this is happening on a wide scale and in many places and frankly you know I could have spent the rest of my life writing that book because it's happening in so many places and um, as we talked about now again in Europe in, in Ukraine This bearing witness is an immense gift because in the bearing witness, both the person who's telling the story gets to be heard. And then I, they they were all saying that their, their main goal is to, for it to not to happen to anyone else. And how is it not going to happen unless you out it? And, and aside from which trauma reconciliation in the individual requires truth telling and being witnessed in compassion. So you have to do it. And, I'm I'm very curious as to since since the book came out, what have you seen uh, as a result of people reading it, both in NGOs and in political organizations, in uh, nonprofits? What have you seen as a response? So obviously, when you write a book like this, you you hope it will change everything. I mean, this was kind of a campaigning book for me as well, and that people would say, "Hey, how on earth can this be happening in 2022? Is completely unacceptable, and we must stop it." Unfortunately, that isn't how things happen in real life. But the book has come out in many different countries. I think it's in 15 different languages now, but. Lots of different countries. In fact, it's going to come out in Ukrainian now. <laughs> and I've had loads of comeback from people, particularly younger women, really, you know, very um, eager to do something about this. So I think the good thing is it's spreading awareness. And that's why I try and talk on as many things as possible. To, unfortunately, the book came out during COVID, so I wasn't able to go and give 
talks but subsequently when I have gone and spoken I mean audiences have been completely shocked when I talk about the scale of this and it's quite clear that you know people don't have any idea and I think that in a strange way that what's happened in Ukraine is the one positive thing is that this is the first time I've seen this issue being reported a lot i mean i in, in the past i really struggled to get my paper to publish stuff on this i had a f- male foreign editor who literally told me nobody wants to hear these stories and you you know there was very little reporting on r- war rape even though it was happening a lot so that's different now there's been a lot of reporting from ukraine and a lot of outrage by lots of international politicians and people and NGOs saying we must do something. The International Criminal Court, you know, have their, their biggest ever deployment there. So let's see if finally, you know, that they do something. It's not just words, but that they actually and, you know, the Ukrainian government are very active and they want, of course, they want to see the Russians brought to justice. Um, but they're being very proactive in collecting evidence, in starting cases. You know, I've never also really seen this happening in real time during a war. You know, normally it's after the war that people start collecting all this. But no, they're very active doing it now. And and also Ukrainians, young Ukrainians, you know, know it's important to collect and document the evidence. But of course, a lot of the women there who have been raped are, and some, it's not just women too, it's men and boys, are reluctant. Although they've spoken to authorities about what happened, they don't necessarily want to bring cases because they worry that will come back on them, that their families will not like it. Some of there's uh, several cases I know of of young girls, 14-year-olds who have been left pregnant, where the families have said they must go ahead with the pregnancy because of religious conservatism. And, you know, it's, it's a difficult culture for people to, to come out and, and speak about it. So... I think although there, we know that there have been lots of cases, the actual number that have, have gone to authorities to actually follow up is still quite small. And so I don't know whether that will change. Well, it's good to hear that there's more real-time accountability. We're in the middle of a series on religious trauma, clergy abuse, a whole bunch of things, because it does seem to all roll up into this secrecy and, and, and non-action, inaction. So this is another vital piece. I love this quote from the beginning of this conversation where you said you had put so much of your professional work into speaking with women who are keeping life together during war, feeding, protecting, and educating while you know the bombs are going off, basically. And that story is also so beautiful, like that here's this 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 countervailing force that's just trying to keep life moving in the face of all of this uh, harm. And, and there's something in the resilience of that life force, whereas Eros trumps Thanatos in the long run, you know. So I was wondering if you could speak to that, sort of this resilience and the healing time frame. One of the things, you know, people often say to me, you know, how do you keep 
doing what you do because you're going to see you see so much evil and depravity and go to these bad places. But I always say to people, but actually in these darkest places, you see the brightest lights. You see people doing amazing things in terrible situations. And I don't know whether it's because I'm a woman that I therefore speak to the women more, or but it just seems to me that it's much more the women that are the ones standing up and doing this. And I feel like, you know, histories of war have always focused very much on the, the fighting, which is almost always the men. But to me, the real story is, and the real heroes are the people trying to keep life together during that war. I think people from outside, they often don't think about this. But so you look at Syria, for example, which has been going on, unfortunately, now for 11 years. In all that time, you know, millions of people are still going to work, feeding their children, educating their children, getting married, getting jobs. You know, life goes on in a lot of places. In Ukraine, too, it's strange. You can be two hours from the front line and it looked like a completely normal town where people were just going about their their business. But of course, you know, they're aware that any moment it could come to them. So, I've always felt very inspired by the the people trying to keep their life going while all this is going on around them. And it is mostly, usually the women that are, are doing that. And I think it's very inspiring. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and where obviously, I guess it's probably the worst place on earth to be a woman at the moment under the Taliban but who are the people that are still coming out in small numbers but coming out and standing up and demonstrating it's not the men it's it's the women that are the brave people trying to to make a difference so so I feel very strongly that we should focus much more on on that and that's the real story of war I hope that that's changing a bit because now that there are more female or military historians have tended to always be men that there are more female correspondents so the reporting has changed a lot from when I started out. I feel too we're not prepared for how to resist how to train how to stay strong how to speak out that there's sort of a fraction nation that happens people get split apart and isolated into homes or you know and then you're not aware of the huge force behind the life givers the peacemakers the people who are the healers it's always struck me that another huge disrespect for the female narrative anyway is that the work of many women's lives is birthing and raising families and that even war can wipe out your son's life have you spent you know 18 or 20 years raising in the in the blink of an eye it's like a total disrespect for that accumulated effort investment of that thing well, I, I think that's why women would do everything to avoid war on, in general. Everything. It's usually ma- male leaders that take us into war, but not always. There have been exceptions. So. Well, that's the, uh, in the United States, that's the origin of the Mother's Day. For those of you who think it's a card and flowers holiday, it was a woman stepping out to say, protect our children, you know, stop war. Anyway, this book... Our bodies, their battlefield, which you're not going to see this on video, but I'm holding up, dog-eared, cards stuck in every page, um, is an incredible achievement. And I'm so grateful that you have gone out and taken the time and gone through the personal suffering to listen to the stories, write them down, capture them so that we can know. And 
I hope that it catalyzes something in the way we respond as a as a planet. Thank you for your interest and for caring about it. As I say, I think you know the only way to make a difference is to start to make people more aware of of what's happening and also to press you know our leaders have again and again said that this isn't acceptable something needs to be done but they don't do anything about it so i think it's time that actually people step up and and do something about it just as you know other things like chemical weapons other kind of weapons have been outlawed this needs to be too as a side note, are there any organizations that you would recommend people to support? Eve's or V's now organization? Yes, and City of Joy. Um, it's difficult because, as I said, you know, it, there isn't really, and I, I think that there is a, a real need for this. A lot of NGOs now have um, sections looking at this, but I slightly feel that some of them do because they feel they need to or they should do and rather than actually being very focused on this issue so i think uh there is a need and then there are organizations looking at the justice part like trial international which have have been very active in trying to bring people to to justice so thank you so much again i really appreciated your time it's a pleasure thank you I really would like everyone to read Christina's book, perhaps as a book club or with a group of other people, where you read it and you digest it and imagine that it was you or your mother or your child or your wife or your sister. As a result of reading her book, we added City of Joy as one of the beneficiaries of our event in the fall, our Sensing Woman five-day deep dive into the art of the female experience, this portal that I'm creating in New York and Chelsea in September. So I would love for you to learn more about that and come to that event. Uh, you can find out more at the.rose.woman on Instagram or at rosebudwoman. We will be there doing daily programming on seeing the future, evening events with music and connective experiences. And we're hanging the visual art of 50 women uh, in the gallery. So try to make that or participate and support it in some way. If you can't physically be there and you want to support the event and its causes, we welcome donors and sponsors from all over. Sensingwoman.org. Thank you so much for being part of the series on Bearing Witness. Know that your strength, your ability to hold yourself in the face of difficult things and then to shake it off and go and serve is the way the world heals. Gritting the planet with light, love, and power. Be well.